Welcome to the Climate Water Project. In this interview, we talk to Erica Geese, a journalist who writes for New York Times, Nature, Scientific American, and National Geographic about water. Hi, Erica. Hi, Alpha. Cool. Good to have you on this podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Cool. Well, Erica is an independent journalist who writes about water, and she wrote a book um, recently called Water Always Wins. So um, so you're both a writer and you're interested in water. Which one, uh, <laughs> which one came first? <laughs> um, probably water, uh, because I grew up in California, where the regular shortage of water is an ongoing issue that preoccupies almost all Californians, I think. Um, you know, when I was in grammar school, we had assemblies about how to conserve water. Um, and I also did a lot of hiking and camping with my family when I was growing up. Um, and uh, I kind of made it a point to swim in any body of water I came across from the Pacific Ocean to Alpine lakes and rushing rivers. So uh, I, I have also long been fond of water's wild side. And um, I didn't get into journalism until college. Um, and I worked at my school newspaper and then went on to do some editing at various publications um, before I became a full-time writer. Hmm. And when you first started writing, was it about, was it about water or? Um, I was always very interested in the environment. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to write stories about things that were happening with the environment. Uh, so, you know, water is a piece of that. Uh, so I think I have always written stories about water, but it's really in the past 10 plus years that I've focused primarily on water. I still do write articles about other things, but water is is the main theme. Mm. And what was, what was, uh, what kind of got you to, to pivot a bit more to just focus on that aspect? Um, yeah, it was actually, I had been writing a lot about renewable energy. I had uh, an editor who had these special sections on energy. And so that gave me the opportunity to write a lot about that. And that had kind of become my beat. But then in, I think it was 2010, I did two articles about the water energy nexus. So that's about the energy that's required to treat and move water and the water that's required to produce various kinds of energy. And I mean, I think you know this, the more you learn about water, the more fascinating it becomes. It's just, there's so many different aspects and levels and layers to it. And it's getting up to so many fascinating things. And so um, I became really hooked on it. I think also I was really taken with the connection between water and life. Mm. Which publication was this? Um, yeah, that had those special sections. It was the International New York Times. It was based in Paris at the time. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and so what was your conclusion as you looked at, uh, using water to produce energy? Yeah. Um, well, it's a really major consideration for a lot of forms of energy. Um, I don't recall the stats off the top of my head, 
Um, but certainly in mining and refining various fossil fuels, there can be a big water impact and often the what's left over is polluted water. They call it produced water. Um, and that can be a, a big issue as well, aside from the water footprint is like how, how to deal with that pollution. Um, almost all power plants that generate heat um, from fossil fuels to nuclear energy use water for cooling. And um, there are various types of doing that. Um, that can require a lot of water pulled from a river, for example, um, and a fair bit of that water is then returned to the river, but it often is uh, thermally polluted, by which I mean it's hotter. Um, and so that can have impacts for fish, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there were some heat waves in Europe uh, where a lot of nuclear plants are on rivers that nuclear plants had to shut down because the water levels were so low that the water was warm enough to begin with, that it wasn't cool enough to actually cool the power plants. Mm. So that's an issue. Sometimes people don't think of, um, of course, hydropower uses water. Um, and for a long time, hydropower was considered to be really reliable baseload power because the water is always flowing, but um, that's not so much the case. Um, for example, there are countries in Southern Africa, like Zambia and Mozambique that get almost all of their electricity from hydropower, 90 some odd percent. And when they've had droughts and low flows, uh, actually their economies have basically shut down because they've had no electricity. So, I mean, they're trying to diversify into solar and other things, but um, yeah, it's, it's a really significant issue. And in terms of the other direction, um, California, for example, which has really extreme water engineering. Uh, at the time I wrote those articles, I think 19% of the energy produced in California was going to move and treat water. Hmm. And so, as you've written more about water over the last 10 years, uh, have you noticed a shift or things that you've become more and more aware of during that time that are really key? Yeah, I mean, I think when I started, because I was coming from covering renewable energy, because I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was um, in contact with a lot of people in tech innovation, and that even became a facet of the tech industry in the Bay Area was clean tech. So that meant renewable energy, but also a lot of technology to, to clean and treat water. Um, so initially I was covering that, you know, I did some articles on desalinization, which has a lot of environmental impacts and high energy impacts as well. Um, but I also started to do more stories uh, to do with what might be called nature-based solutions. So working more with nature or to restore natural aspects of water uh, in order to enhance water management. And that is definitely a growing movement around the world and has grown probably roughly in parallel with my time in reporting water. Um, so 
there are now names for this around the world. You know, China calls it sponge cities. Europe calls it green infrastructure. Peru calls it natural infrastructure. The United States calls it low impact design. Australia calls it water sensitive urban design, I think. But um, I still felt like these approaches were getting very little attention, certainly among other journalists and also in the uh, policy sector. And I mean, you can see that a little bit when you look at the climate approach, Um, you know, something like 25% of our emissions come from land use change but that receives two to three percent of funding and very little attention and you know working with water on the landscape is is an important aspect of that um so i think also you notice that you know we're having more frequent and severe floods and droughts around the world it seems like every week there's another terrible news story and something i keep hearing from people is our infrastructure isn't built for these extremes. Um, But what I've realized in my reporting is that our infrastructure is a big part of the problem. Climate change is of course a factor that is changing water cycles, but our infrastructure has interfered with the natural water cycle to a really extreme degree cumulatively around the world. And I don't think people fully appreciate that. And that's why um, our infrastructure is actually making these floods and droughts worse. And so doubling down on that is not likely to solve the problem. Yeah, it's not that our infrastructure is not enough for the extremes, it's that our infrastructure is causing the extremes. Yeah, yeah. So just a few statistics um, that I found during my research. Um, Humans have filled or drained as much as 87% of the world's wetlands and dammed and diverted two-thirds of the world's large rivers um, the area of pave of cities has doubled just since 1992. So that's impermeable concrete and asphalt. And a study just came out a couple of weeks ago that looked at floodplain loss um, also since 1992, which is when a good data set became available um, in the area that humans have further encroached into floodplains just since 1992 is greater than the area of Ukraine. So how would you, well, actually, I'm curious, when you first began, were you much more pro-nature-based solutions as you are, as you are now, or did it kind of gradually, as you looked and more and more into water, you pivoted a bit more from more gray infrastructure to green infrastructure? Yeah, I think um, maybe a little of both. Mm-hmm. So I have a master's degree in literature with a focus in eco-criticism. So that's basically like literary analysis from an ecological perspective. And so I did a lot of uh, kind of thinking around ideas of deep ecology and human connection to and separation from nature and the dominant culture. Um, And so I think I've always been interested in in, in those ideas and how a lot of our choices in the dominant culture have moved us away from these natural systems that support us and have undermined and degraded them. So I think I was already aware of those issues and interested in them. Um, but 
having lived in the San Francisco Bay area, which is where I grew up, but also during kind of the whole tech boom from building the internet to building apps to clean tech, um, you know, that is also a very strong part of the culture. And so I think there was a time when I was more open to the idea that these technological solutions could save us. Um, but the more I have reported on them, the more I've realized that they are often perpetuating this um, thing that we do in our dominant culture, which is this single focus problem solving. You know, like we see a problem and we try to go at it directly and come up with that, you know, so if it's flooding, then we build a wall. If it's water scarcity, let's like bring in more water from somewhere else. Um, and, you know, if it's climate change, like let's reduce carbon, let's plant a bunch of trees that are going to store carbon um, without looking at these complex natural systems that are a part of everything and that have been supporting us. And I've come to understand that the reason these single focus solutions have worked as well as they have for as long as they have is because we have had a lot of buffer in the natural systems that support us. But, you know, in my lifetime, um, you know, the population of the world has more than doubled from three and a half billion to more than 8 billion. And we have expanded the footprint of everything we do to meet the needs of all these people. And, you know, there's also not just population, but overconsumption, particularly in richer countries, which is a factor. But in fact, like more than 75% of the land area of earth is significantly degraded because of human activities. So, you know, things that might've worked in the past aren't working now because we don't have that buffer of these natural systems that provide all the things we need, clean water, clean air, um, pollinators, et cetera. Mm. <clears throat> so before, as we built these gray infrastructures, we've had a buffer to kind of cover up our mistakes. Um, yeah. How would you say, so-, so can, I, can I add it, something, Alpha? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I would say also, um, not just to cover up our mistakes, but now with the more connected world, I think we're more aware of, how our actions here might have impacts on people elsewhere. So a lot of these great infrastructure innovations are also an environmental justice issue. Mm -hmm. So for example, levees, you know, they might protect one community, but because they're cutting the river off from its floodplain, the level of the river is higher. So that's going to increase flood risk elsewhere on the river. So if there's a community along the river who can't afford a levee, they're going to be at higher flood risk. And similarly with dams, um, there was a 40-year study that found that dams brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. Mm. So I think that's another factor as we're learning more about, um, you know, looking beyond the immediate to understand the impacts of, of what we're doing. And of course, climate is another aspect of that. So, so yeah, so, so dams and levees are, are a problem. Um, what would you say is a better, what would, what would be the green infrastructure or the nature-based equivalent of that, that would might work better than the dams and the levees? 
Yeah. I mean, if you think about that 87% of wetlands that no longer exist, you begin to understand why we're having a lot of flooding because that water doesn't have a place to go. And then also why we're having scarcity, because when we have flooding, we try to get rid of the water very quickly. And then it's not infiltrating into the ground locally uh, to supply our streams and wetlands during the dry season. And so then we have to turn somewhere else to find that water for later. So, um, you know, we have a lot of things that are in harm's way, a lot of buildings and um, homes and businesses and agriculture that are in floodplains, in wetlands. Um, and those aren't going to go away tomorrow. Um, but those buildings do turn over more quickly than people think and marginal agriculture goes out of production. In fact, that's a trend that's happening right now around the world as more people move to cities. Um, so if an area can do some historical ecology, which means mapping and understanding where rivers, um, streams, wetlands, et cetera, were in their area before we changed them, then you have a sense of where water may return. That's why my book is called Water Always Wins, because it does have this tendency to, to go where it wants to go. Um, so if you know, okay, this housing development is built on a wetland, if that housing development is flooding a lot, um, or if it needs to come down for some other reason, maybe a city would choose, okay, we're going to return that space to water and use that as part of our stormwater management, as opposed to putting another building in harm's way. So that's one thing that can be done. Um, and oftentimes it can involve looking above the city. For example, Pamplona, Spain was uh, flooding a lot and there was an area of marginal agriculture that was a floodplain just above the city. And so they returned that to the river and they've dramatically decreased flooding in the city as a result of that. So that kind of information can be really valuable. And I think, you know, it's just, it's looking for opportunities for slow water throughout the watershed from the source down to the sea. And these projects can be small because they're distributed across the landscape. And so that's another interesting facet of this. Um, there is a lot of opportunity because it could be somebody's rain garden. It could be a bioswale alongside a freeway. Um, you know, there are many small interventions that cumulatively add up to a big impact. Um, so there's just so much more that we could be doing in all of the ways in which we interact with the landscape in our urban areas, in the way we um, practice agriculture, in the way that we practice forestry and logging, um, grazing, and also water management. Yeah, because water is decentralized. We can all be doing our part in that local area to absorb more of the rain or slow more of the water so it doesn't... That's right. Yeah. And I think... That's a really empowering message for communities um, and the communities that I visited around the world. Um, you know, I think people can feel really overwhelmed or helpless with climate change and with all these floods and droughts that we're experiencing. But slow water projects are something that people can do with their own neighbors and their own communities to both protect their communities from these water extremes and also have a, a significant uh, impact on helping the global climate 
issue as well. Mm. In China, where there was a lot of floods, in part because they were chopping down too many trees, they started the what you mentioned earlier, the sponge cities concept. So part of that is actually moving people off the floodplains. Um, so, and I guess it's a little easier in China where the government has a bit more control. But I think I hear it even in the US and Canada that like there's nonprofit groups that buy back land near the floodplains and so allow yeah. that to be a buffer, you know. Yeah, that can happen in a lot of different ways. You're right. You know, China has the centralized government and they can sort of dictate where um, people are going to be, uh, you know, for better and for worse. <laughs> um, but I've seen examples like um, in Seattle, there was a stream that was flooding regularly and there were a lot of homes that were literally hanging over the stream. And so the public utility there, the water utility bought out those properties from willing sellers over a period of about 20 years. So that was kind of a long-term plan. You know, people would flood, they would get fed up with it and the city would say, well, hey, you know, we could buy that from you. Um, and then ultimately they were able to build this um, really cool stream restoration project that I wrote about in my book. So that's one way. Um, nonprofits are one way. Uh, you know, a lot of um, dirty industry was located along rivers because they needed the water either for the input and or for dumping their pollution. And so um, as those industries have closed up or gone elsewhere or people don't want them in the middle of cities anymore, that can be a, a significant chunk of land right by the river that could be returned by the city um, as a, a floodplain. And Often these are made into parks, so they create an important recreation space for urban people. Um, and then when the water comes, they are more easily floodable with fewer impacts. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to do it. We often and there um, can be I, the, the oh, sorry. Oh. The, there can be incentives also for homeowners. Um, like for example, in Detroit, um, they have a big problem with flooding partly because they have very clay-y soil and um, so the water doesn't infiltrate very well. But um, the stormwater bills are calibrated to the amount of impervious area that they have on their land. So, um, you know, instead of paving a big driveway area, maybe they would make the, their driveway out of pebbles or something because then their bill for the stormwater would be lowered. Hmm. Floodplains traditionally have also a lot more fertile soil because of all the wetlands and the, so people also build farmland there. So do you have anything to say about that whole situation? Yeah, um, that is true. Uh, but, you know, there's always been a tension with that because floodplains exist to absorb floods. So, um, yeah, that area is quite fertile. Uh, and part of the reason it is fertile is because it floods and the river is depositing new um, silt and sediment on top of it. Um, so, you know, if you build a levee to protect that flood uh, floodplain or to keep the water off the floodplain, then your fertility of the soil is going to go down over time because you're not replenishing that resource. Um, in some cases, uh, there's a lot of runoff um, when you irrigate and that can further deplete um, the soil erosion issue. Um, so 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tricky issue. I think um, beaver wetlands also, you know, were extremely rich areas that people wanted to farm in. So once the beavers were removed, were killed, um, you know, those areas became very attractive to people as well. Um, but, you know, those areas are inherently uh, floodplains. And so if you're going to take that area, um, you know, there's going to be there's going to be risk there. Um, in some places, like I'm thinking of the Yolo Bypass, which is near Sacramento in California. And the Sacramento is a river of extremes. It's It's got far uh, a far wider extreme than the Mississippi from a very, very low flow to a very, very high flow. And before uh, settlers came in, started to control the Sacramento and the San Joaquin rivers, which are the big rivers in California's Central Valley, the vast majority of the Central Valley would flood every year and parts of it would remain inundated for six months. Um, so, you know, the Central Valley is 400 miles long and 75 miles wide. It's an absolutely massive floodplain. Mm. Um, and of course, most of that now is farmland and the rivers are very tightly controlled. But the Sacramento still needs um, a significant outlet uh, to protect the city of Sacramento, which is right in the floodplain and, and some of the other towns around there. And so the Yolo Bypass was created um, some decades ago as a, a release valve for high flows. And that area continues to be farmed. Um, but the farmers who farm there know that that area is prioritized for water when necessary. And I'm not too familiar with, um, you know, whether how, how they're compensated um, when the water comes and they're not able to farm. Um, but there is a co compensation mechanism uh, where they are paid for that sacrifice that they're making for the greater good to give the water a place to go. And I know the Netherlands has come to similar agreements with farmers and it's an idea that's that's being discussed in other areas as well. Mm. So kind of a medium path so that it's more like a part-time farming solution, part-time wetland, part-time <laughs> farm. Yeah, yeah. I know in uh, the central California, I mean, it used to be like a quarter wetlands. And so, but we dammed up all the rivers that flow into the central, uh, central valley in California. And so now, and that's like the breadbasket of, us and uh, produce so much of the food but it's now all dried up because we've dammed the rivers and blocked that natural overflow of the rivers so like if we could bring back that somehow and uh, I, I talked to a woman uh professor helen dalkey and uh yeah. i think maybe you you maybe you've talked to her too i think i have interviewed her, yeah, yeah so she floods she allows in the wet season to actually allow the farms to flood and so then the water can infiltrate into the aquifers and rebuild the aquifers yeah, um, I, I'm familiar with her work and it's very interesting. And I've written some articles about on-farm flooding, uh, like using the farm lands as seasonal wetlands again, either when the crops aren't there or as as Helen Dockley is doing, testing how much water certain crops can tolerate uh, and still be productive. One issue with flooding farm fields is a lot of fertilizers and pesticides are used in industrial farming. And so it's possible to convey those pollutants down into the groundwater. 
And once you've done that, it's incredibly hard to clean the groundwater once, once it's in there. It's possible, like once you pump it up, it's very expensive. So obviously it's best to, to not contaminate the groundwater to begin with. Um, and so in terms of farm water recharge, I think they're talking about trying to time the water away from applications of these fertilizers and pesticides. Um, but I think, you know, it's possible there are residues on the land that are still going to be conveyed. Um, more broadly speaking, agriculture in California has developed far beyond what the water in those areas can actually support. And there have been some really great um, historical accounts. Uh, I'm thinking of Mark Eriks's book, The Dreamt Land, um, which kind of show how, you know, an area in the Central Valley, uh, the San Joaquin Valley, Tulare Lake area, you know, they would run out of water and then they would petition Congress and get some big infrastructure project to bring in water from somewhere else for next to nothing cost to them. And so this is actually uh, an idea that is examined in a field called sociohydrology, which is how water and people interact. And what the sociohydrologists have shown is that if you have an area with water scarcity and you bring in water from somewhere else, it just increases demand. It means that more people are going to start growing crops there. More housing is going to be built. More businesses and industry are going to be using that water. And so then you just have this perpetual cycle of scarcity. Mm. And that is exactly what has happened in California Central Valley, particularly in San Joaquin Valley. So now a lot of people in California are starting to talk about the idea that some farmland should be fallowed permanently, that we should not be using all of the land that we're currently using because we don't have enough water to irrigate all of them. And so how that is done, how we decide which farmlands are fallowed is a complicated question there are definitely equity issues. Um, the people who are using by far the most water in California are these um, millionaire or billionaire landowner growers. Um, and so, you know, should they be pushed to give up some of their land? Um, should the land be decided by uh, what is already turning salty from too much agriculture. Um, some of that is starting to happen. Should it be prioritized by land that's really important to endangered species to help um, keep them from going extinct? Should it be land that has these natural infiltration channels called paleo valleys where like we could do really meaningful quantities of recharge? Um, so there are a lot of questions about that. Um, and there has been uh, some stirrings of a movement to re-examine water rights in California, um, which have been pretty inviolable, but there's an increasing argument being made that those rights are 
really, really inequitable and are really prioritizing just a handful of settlers over everyone else and, and the environment. Um, so yeah. And in terms of California providing food to the country or the world, it is, um, but I would say, should it be, uh, you know, there are places with a lot of natural water. I'm thinking of the Midwest, for example, where they're actively draining water from their fields, which were once wetlands. Um, and, you know, they're primarily growing commodities like um, corn and soy. And a lot of that isn't being grown for food. It's being grown for ethanol, like energy or um, just as feedstock for livestock. Uh, so, you know, maybe some of those fields should be turned over to growing a more diversity of food for other people, um, you know, since they have a lot of natural water there. So, yeah, I think there is going to have to be a recalibration of, of where we grow food, uh, depending on water availability. Right. So geography is really important. So kind of relocalizing our food systems and also for the water to actually be where the water is rather than transport it. Yeah. And I think, away. you know, California, many places in California are extremely, re extremely reliant on water from elsewhere. So when you say water should be local, I think a lot of Californians think that's impossible. Um and, and maybe it is given the extent to which we have these vast populations in places that don't have a lot of natural water, but there's so much more we could be doing to make the most of the water that comes. I think of Los Angeles, uh, you know, the Los Angeles river is a giant concrete raceway that literally just whisks water away. Um, and then so much water for Los Angeles is brought in from elsewhere. And, um, you know, there's been talk of increasing stormwater infiltration, you know, making the city more permeable. So a lot more of the rain that comes will infiltrate into the ground locally. There's been talk of restoring parts of the river, of uh, some of the tributary rivers. Um, but as I understand it, um, those projects are stalled and aren't really going anywhere um, at this point. So that that's just one example. There's Here's another, uh, which I write about in my book, Chennai, India. Uh, you know, it made international headlines about five years ago because it ran out of water. But in fact, Chennai runs out of water almost every summer. And it also has really frequent flooding. Um, there was a massive flood in 2015 that killed at least 400 people. And some people like couldn't leave their homes for a month because the waters were so high. Um, yet... Chennai receives one and a half times the water that it consumes during the monsoon. The rainfall it receives is one and a half times what it needs. And yet, because it's built up so much in the past 40 years, covering over wetlands, rivers, uh, backwaters, et cetera, it's rushing all that water away so that it won't flood on the concrete. And then it's building desalinization plants. It's pumping groundwater and trucking it in from far away. Um, so yeah, there's just so much more that we could be doing. There, the, the dominant way that we do things is really 
short-sighted and like that single focus. We're worried about flooding today. So let's get rid of the water. And then a couple months later, ah, we don't have water. <laughs> Which I think brings us to this, uh, this idea that you've been promoting a lot. The slow water is if there's a lot of water at one time, the idea is we could, if we can slow it in the landscape enough, then it'll be there when it turns dry. Um, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, there have been uh, some interesting stories about the scale and, and science about the scale of groundwater depletion around the world. Um, and in California, for example, there's long been this myth that, oh, if surface water is running low, let's just pump groundwater because it's right under our feet. Um, but what they're kind of conveniently ignoring is that groundwater and surface water are connected. They're basically the same water. And so if you have a healthy groundwater table that is going to be feeding streams and rivers from below and wetlands. And so that has helped to make the, the surface water more constant throughout the year and a more constant temperature as well. So, you know, in the West, we think a lot of our streams are seasonal and run only in the winter. But historically, a lot of these streams actually ran year round. And the fact that they don't now is because of the way that we have changed the landscape and that we're not allowing that natural infiltration in wetlands and floodplains and that we're over pumping groundwater. So yeah, the extent to which we can restore spaces for water to move underground can help us uh, to stabilize those water extremes in our local area. And so can you say a little bit about how, how uh, the groundwater, the surface water and the atmospheric water all kind of like there's there's different bodies of water and i guess there's ocean water too like how is the water moving between all these different phases or different areas and, <laughs> and how is the great infrastructure disrupting that and how do we want to have the nature-based solutions you know recalibrate or you know restore that that flow wow that is a massively huge question <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, of course, the water cycle on Earth is a closed cycle. The same water is just moving around and around and around. Um, and water is going through its various phase changes. Um, when it's liquid, it can infiltrate underground during slow phases. That water... Um, goes down with gravity and with hydraulic pressure, then it comes back up. Um, and water evaporates from oceans, certainly, uh, but there's a growing body of science that's looking at plants' role in the water cycle, and in particular, um, evapotranspiration. So this is evaporation from the soil and from water on tree leaves and the transpiration, which is sort of like the plant's exhalation when the stomata on their leaves open and release water. And, you know, that water is a vapor that ultimately can uh, coalesce into rain and form rain. Um, and so, as you know, um, there is a study that shows that, you know, 10 to 80% of rain over continents comes from evapotranspiration, not from evaporation of the ocean. 
Um, and so that means the plants have a really important role in the water cycle. And we have dramatically altered plants, uh, certainly with uh, industrial logging that is clear cutting forests. Um, and even when it's replanted, uh, you know, often the trees that are <clears throat> planted are just one or two commercial species. So it's basically like a plantation instead of a healthy intact ecosystem that has the understory and the decomposing wood and all of those things help keep moisture in the forest and help keep it producing more of this evapotranspiration. Similarly, um, grasslands uh, have been really hard grazed. Um, and so the grasses are no longer healthy and releasing the water that they could be. Um, and the killing of beavers at one point um, before colonization, it's estimated that one tenth of North America were beaver created wetlands. So, you know, the trappers kind of came ahead of the settlers. So by the time the settlers arrived, their idea of the baseline of, of what was normal was already a significantly drier continent than what it was historically. And so all of these phases of in ways in which water can slow on the land um, contribute to keeping the groundwater supply healthy, to keep that surface water healthy, and to keep the rain cycle in a more stable pattern over land. Um, and so the extent to which we can return space to water across the landscape in this distributed way, every little bit helps its cumulative to help restore some of those aspects of the water cycle that we have really disrupted with our development. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, so the gray infrastructure is disrupting because we can't get the evapotranspiration. We also can't get the soaking of the water downward. So it's disrupting both those cycles. And uh, and I, I think it's kind of a hard, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a hard thing for civilization to face up to that the, all this building is actually disrupting how we're getting our water and like all our natural disasters around water. So, um, and yeah. I think just bringing that awareness is almost hard to realize, especially for governments, because it's so focused on development as in paving over the land, but that paving over is disrupting both the upper cycle and the lower cycle. Yeah. And I think part of it is our economic system, right? Like it's also single focused, so if you're concerned about flooding in one area and you're considering building a levy, you're looking at the cost of building the levy and the maintenance of that levy and the degree to which it's going to protect that community. You're not looking at um, <clears throat> what you're losing in terms of not having that flood, natural flood protection from that space in the floodplain. You're not looking at uh, you know, the degradation of the microbes that are cleaning the water in that area. Um, you're not looking at the costs of increased flooding to other communities. Um, and so, you know, in, in our dominant ex, um, economic system, these are known as externalities. So, you know, we see this again and again, like um, an oil company is going into the Amazon uh, to drill for oil and, there's going to be a lot of deforestation and pollution um, of the river. And uh, they typically don't pay for that. You know, increasingly, we try to have regulations to try to force them to pay, but they're often undermined. 
and that indigenous community that lived nearby that completely relied on the river for everything, you know, maybe they don't have food anymore or, you know, the water makes them sick. Um, but typically the oil company isn't paying for their welfare, nor are they paying for the welfare of the plants and animals who have also been harmed by that. Um, you know, you might have, so, so typically the environment in the surrounding community, um, and it's often an environmental justice issue, are paying those negative consequences, whereas the corporation is just getting the profit and the benefit. Um, and so this is also the case when we're making these development choices. Um, that cost-benefit analysis is often very, very narrowly focused and not looking at the costs of that industrial solution nor are they counting the benefits of a nature-based solution, the, the many different things that might, you know, the carbon storage, the, the food for fish that people rely on at the base of the food chain, um, you know, the provision of flood protection and uh, drought protection. Um, so there are schools of thought that have been trying to quantify you know, these as ecosystem services that might be compensated in some financial way, there are other people who say that it's unethical to put a price on nature because nature has a fundamental right to exist. <clears throat> and when you commodify it, you are kind of setting a pathway for its potential destruction, if that makes economic sense. But I mean, we already have that. <laughs> so this is sort of a way to try to bring what has been external to our economic system into the mainstream economic system. And um, the UN has a very long acronym, <laughs> um, which I can't remember, it's like seven letters, uh, where they're trying to get countries to voluntarily start counting some of these other benefits that nature provides in making development choices. And the Biden administration has uh, put forth its own version of that. Um, I'm not sure of the status, if it's actually used or um, if it would just apply to government contracts. Uh, but it is something that has been part of the discussion in environmental and environmental economic circles for 30-ish years and is now starting to make its way a little bit into the mainstream. Um, but it is something that I think if we if we don't value those things, we're going to continue to make these choices uh that are are harming these systems that support us right and and also economic from an economic perspective for governments and for insurance companies if you have these floods and fires and droughts which each can be billions of dollars like you're losing all that money so i think in part it's also they don't see the connection between the overdevelopment and the grain infrastructure causing like that whole causality loop maybe isn't totally clear to governments and insurance people. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why I wrote the book because right. I feel like more people do need to understand that. Yeah. Um, I think too, uh, you know, often these decisions are pretty short-sighted. Again, that kind of single focus, like the immediate problem that's in front of us today. Hmm. <clears throat> but you see that in all kinds of ways. Like um, for example, uh, cities and their development choices. Um, you know, a developer wants to build their development because then they sell it and profit and move on. Um, the city is often encouraged to have that development because that's going to increase their tax base. 
Um, so you see a lot of cities that are continuing to build in floodplains or right along coasts where extreme sea level rise is expected. Um, that was part of that floodplain study that I referenced earlier. Like a lot of that encroachment into floodplains over the past 30 plus years has been for urban development. Um, but it is very short-sighted because the cities are also responsible for providing that development with clean water and sewage treatment and electricity and road access. And, you know, with flooding, all of those things are going to be harder. Even, uh, you know, the flood can also push up groundwater. And so that can cause sewage to come into people's houses, even if it's not actually flooding with water. So there are all kinds of levels. And in a lot of places, the city might be on the hook for that in the really near future. Um, and yet, in the moment of decision making, they tend to look only at that, that, that pro, you know, the, the increase to their tax base that they're going to get from that development. Yeah. There's also another huge issue that's kind of uh, that to, to those of us here on the West Coast of the North America and also in many other parts of the world is the whole wildfire issue. Do you want to say a little bit about how the gray infrastructure and the nature-based solution paradigm sheds light on this whole wildlife wildfire issue? Like what, like yeah, how are we, um, what are we doing that's possibly example. causing a, a lot of these wildfires or making them worse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly climate change is a factor, um, but, you know, there's been a lot of focus on uh, fuel loading, which is the idea that forests are really thick with brush and, you know, therefore more likely to burn. And so, so many of the solutions are focused on cleaning forests, you know, uh, Trump got a lot of uh, kind of ridicule for talking about raking forests. That was this idea of, of needing to clean up the forests. And, you know, for a hundred years in the United States, there was a policy of not letting fires burn, stamping out wildfires by 10 a.m. the morning after it was discovered. And so, uh, you know, the idea was that that led to a lot of, of fuel loading. Um, but there's a growing body of science that has looked at forests that have burned in the U.S. over, um, I think, like a 25-year period. And so one idea was that protected forests have burned much more severely because they have this fuel loading because they haven't been cleaned they haven't been logged they haven't been thinned um but in fact um this study found that the opposite was true and there's additional studies that are starting to support this and the reason um is explained in in some other work that looks at healthy forest role in the water cycle um so certainly um you know, there is the work of Anastasia Makariva uh, with the biotic pump theory. And this is the idea that forests have evolved. The forests don't just grow where it rains, but they have evolved to bring the rain to them and, you know, other things that they need. And that that works best when you have like a healthy blanket of, of trees from the coast inland, because they're sort of 
passing the rain along in the way that you know they evapotranspire um, and as the rain forms, it creates a pressure vacuum and that pulls in more wind, which pushes the rain then further inland. So that's one concept. Um, but there have been other researchers have looked at um, all the ways in which a healthy forest holds moisture and then also uh, releases it. So, um, you know, you've got the, the, the big trees, but then you've got the understory plants and you've got a lot of decomposing wood and all of these things kind of hold moisture and create this microhabitat that keep it damper, um, that make more water available to the plants and that also have more water to create local rain and pass that along. Um, and so when you have logging, for example, um, I'm in Canada right now and there's a lot, a lot of um, really intense clear cut logging in British Columbia. And, you know, it is clear cut. They go in, they cut all the trees. It's completely naked except for these um, slash piles of debris, wood debris. Um, and so it's making the area much hotter because you've removed all this vegetation that's providing that cooling microclimate. Um, it's dried out the soil because the soil doesn't have that protective layer. So that's also um, releasing its water and perhaps also killing the various uh, life in the soil that helps it to retain water better. Uh, so then you can have landslides and things like that in the wake of the logging. And then when they replant, plant, <coughs> it's often just like one or two target species. And so it is like a plantation. They often will use um, pesticides to kill the understory plants because these are non-target species. And um, I think uh, the thought is that it would compete with the, the species that they want to grow and also make it more expensive to harvest them when they move in again. And so um, in a very real way, this growing body of science is showing that industrial logging is actually contributing to the forest fires. And that's something that um, I've seen really very little discussion about in, in the kind of broader dialogue. Um, and it's something that I, I hope to report on in the upcoming months. Yeah, because these wildfires are more and more, you know, faced like more and more of us are actually doing the smoke inhalation and having to move and- yeah. Um, so yeah, so the fuel reduction is kind of focused on kind of the carbon cycle, but there's very little attention on the water cycle. And that is that the forests help, help create rain, which lessens wildfires, and, but also that the forests, especially older growth and biodiverse forests, hold in humidity. That's and right. So, um, and I think, you, were you referring to Chad Hansen's paper that was showing that some of these un, unmanaged forests actually have less fires because they're holding a lot more humidity? Yeah. I, you know, I was just reading through a whole bunch of these papers last week. And so mm -hmm. I'm not remembering which okay. researcher is with which paper, but um, if, if you know that that is, the yeah, one, that's one I, of the, I trust you on that. <laughs> he wrote a yeah. book called Smokescreen about this uh, topic. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll have to look for that. Yeah. And also like when we pave over the land, we're actually destroying that whole small water cycle that's creating rain and also the groundwater also helps because if the trees can draw up that groundwater, it helps deal with Wi-Fi. So all this kind of development, we're not talking about all this development is actually impacting wildfire. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think too, um, 
there's a concern that the idea of nature-based solutions might be co-opted in this kind of single-focus problem-solving mentality. And I think of the Trillion Trees movement. So, um, you know, people are talking about how trees store carbon dioxide, and so therefore we need to plant a trillion trees. And this has been um, a platform in many countries around the world um, and internationally as well. Uh, But the problem is, again, that is completely ignoring the water cycle. So if you're focused on maximizing carbon, um, you might even clear cut a natural forest and plant a pine plantation because pine trees grow really, really quickly. And so the idea is like, oh, they're storing a lot of carbon. And, you know, we're seeing more studies that show that yes, old growth trees hold more carbon because they are just so big. And because you have an intact soil layer, which is also holding carbon. Um, But in terms of trees in the water cycle, Um, There was a study in science that got a lot of attention, I think it came out in 2005, which showed that trees can deplete the water cycle. Um, But Douglas Scheel, who's a forest researcher based in the Netherlands, I believe, um, he has pointed out that that mega or meta study was looking at multiple other studies. And in fact, all but three of them were plantations of pine or eucalyptus. So if you're planting a pine or eucalyptus plantation, well, anywhere, but especially in a place where those trees are not native, it's not surprising that they might take up a lot of the local water. Whereas if you are restoring a complex natural forest, um, they might actually improve the water cycle in that area. And um, Anastasia Makariva has a paper that just came out a couple months ago that looks at that type of restoration. And um, it it seems like in some places the, the restoration might decrease the water availability in the short term, but then would ultimately uh, improve the local water availability. And then you know, her vision is restore this area and then the area next to it. And so that they can kind of build on their water cycle rather than going into a desert area and trying to restore that all on its own. Um, yeah, so kind another of thing, yeah, an incremental yeah. spreading out of the area that you grow your trees. Yeah. And then um, Douglas Scheel was a co-author on another paper recently that looked at what are you actually measuring when you're measuring uh, increased water availability, for example, um, or decreased water availability. And he found that a lot of these papers were looking at annual runoff. And if you have a deforested area, you might have increased runoff in the winter because the trees aren't slowing that water. They're not using that water. Um, but that's not actually when people nearby want the water. In fact, they want less runoff in the winter and they want more water availability in the dry season. And uh, the work that he did showed that when you have that um, native reforested area, there's an increase in water availability during the period that people would actually need and want it. Mm. So, yeah, so the, the, the ecosystem, when it's healthy, is kind of managing 
water supply. It's like increasing it for the dry and using that water from the wet to kind of guide it to the dry. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 paradigm of the slow water is also very important to this whole wildfire because the part of our problem is that we're rushing off that water off the continents, right? So it's too fast. So that means we're losing the water. And it kind of intuitively makes sense that if you have less water on the continents, then there's going to be more wildfires. Yeah. And I think too, like with the lower groundwater table, then you don't have, you know, a lot of plants aren't going to be able to reach that water <laughs> during the dry season. But um, mature trees and areas uh, with a healthy groundwater table are able to continue transpiring water throughout the year. And, you know, Francina Dominguez um, is showing that in a, in a study that she's working on right now um, that hasn't been published yet. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the models presume that trees aren't transpiring during the dry season. Um, but in fact, mature trees uh, do have that availability. And it's the same thing with the beavers. Um, you know, Emily Fairfax out of UC uh, Channel Islands has done a lot of work about uh, beavers and fire. And um, she's shown that it's not just the beaver ponds themselves that don't burn and create fire breaks, but also that their, their ponds are raising the groundwater table across a larger area. And so those plants that have more access to that water that are near the pond um, are less likely to burn because they're well hydrated. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that a, a kind of oversized rodent is so important to our whole water system and fire system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're very cool animals. And it's interesting too, because like humans and beavers are both water engineers, mm. um, but we have different goals. You know, beavers goal is really slow water to create slow water because they are uh, kind of awkward on land and they have a lot of land predators. And so they want to um, make a, a wider area of water that they can swim around and get to their food and their building supplies uh, with without danger. Um, and whereas human engineering has to a large degree been really focused on creating fast water, on rushing water off the landscape and, and viewing water as a, as a problem. Yeah, so the the beavers are slow water engineers. Mm -hmm. Do you want do you want to say about more about this slow water? Because you were going to name it, I think, at one point your book actually instead of water always wins slow water. So do you want to elaborate a little on your vision of the slow water movement that you're yeah, and you know what's really interesting about that too is that um, my book is going to be published in China in the next month or two, and I just saw the cover, and um, the the title in English is Water Always Wins. But the title in Chinese is slow water. Okay. Well, I think in Chinese <laughs> that would be man, man shui. <laughs> well, I, I don't speak Chinese myself. I learned this via Google Translate. So I defer to your, <laughs> to your knowledge. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the slow water principles are kind of, uh, you know, what we've been talking about basically looking for places to restore wetlands, floodplains, water towers, forests, meadows, bioswales. Um, slow water is meant to invoke the slow food movement, which look, looks to work with local geology, biology, and culture. The idea that every place has a unique solution for its own place. 
um, along those same lines, slow water projects respect water's agency and its relationships with soil, rock, microbes, beavers, and people. Um, slow water projects involve systems thinking like we've been discussing rather than that single focus problem solving. They're distributed across the landscape rather than centralized like our current water management. Um, they're a slow water is ideally local, making the most of the local water availability and working within it. Um, socially just, not protecting some at the expense of others, uh, not giving water to some and taking it from others. And it also has a community facing aspect. So in a lot of places I went around the world, um, the community is actively managing the slow water project. I, I saw this in, in India and in Peru and Kenya, um, but it could also be um, more of an educational component. So I think about that industrial area in a city along a river that's been restored to park. So that might be built and kind of managed by the city, by experts, but maybe it has signage that explains to the public who come to recreate there. Uh, you know, what this land is doing and the relationship that water has with land. Um, and I see more and more examples of that. So that's a way to um, kind of engage the community and help them understand uh, what's happening in that area and, and the importance of it. Um, and just like one other idea about the, the social justice thing is like the receivers may seem lucky, the people who get the protection of the levy or who get the water from the dam. But in fact, those people are also made more vulnerable. Um, and so sociohydrologists call this the levy effect and the reservoir effect. So the levy effect is like, oh, there's a levy there. Great. It's, it's safe. So let's build a bunch more housing and businesses right behind the levy. And it's true that that area may flood less often but it's still likely to flood at some point. And um, when that flood comes, it's going to be more devastating because there are more people at risk in that area. And similarly with the reservoir effect, it's that kind of ongoing increasing of demand. Like people see that reservoir and they think, oh, there's plenty of water. So let's expand a lot more. Let's use more water. Let's not conserve. Um, and so then you're just sort of setting that community up for that cycle of scarcity and worry, which is like really what we see in a lot of California. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you build that infrastructure, it kind of morphs where people go. So um, it's almost better not to, well, it is better not to, I guess, build it and kind of rely on these slow water solutions that, and yeah. then local water. Yeah. And it, yeah. And if I could just add, I mean, I I don't mean to convey that, you know, we shouldn't live in cities or grow food or use tree products. Um, but the way that we've been doing it is very extractive and single focus and has created a lot of unintended consequences. So there are a lot of ways that people around the world are innovating to do these things that have a much lighter footprint and that make a lot more space for water and water's relationships and systems within our human communities and activities. So, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of room to improve the way we're doing things. Hmm. And 
just on the slow water thing, what are some things that individuals can do um, to slow water if you wanted to help? Yeah. Um, I mean, it depends in part if you own land. Um, if you are a homeowner or a person who owns a bigger piece of land, there's a lot that you can do. Um, <clears throat> I would say uh, an important thing to do is to get rid of your lawn. Um, lawns are the largest single irrigated crop in North America. They use more than 9 billion gallons of water a day. Uh, they're also basically ecological deserts. Um, they don't support biodiversity. They require a lot of uh, fertilizers and chemicals to keep them looking green. Um, and that pollution runs off into local waterways. Um, so I would suggest taking up your lawn and replanting it with native plants. Uh, native plants, once they're established, do not require supplemental water because they evolved for the place that you are. Sorry. Um, they support local animals and birds and butterflies and biodiversity. Um, they help water infiltrate in, in the area. Um, you can create uh, bioswales or um, rain gardens or these infiltration wells, depending on the area of land you have available. So, um, you know, you could create a lower spot in your yard where the stormwater can kind of run off and infiltrate. Um, and if you have a small area, that could be a well, which is... Uh, got a small footprint, but then goes down deep and then the water can move into the ground from the sides of the well. Um, green roofs are a possibility, although that can require additional um, bracing for your house to support the weight. Uh, certainly like taking up a concrete driveway and replacing it with pavers or stones um, or even just like two strips to drive on with a planted area around is another way. All the ways you can think of to help water infiltrate onto your piece of property. Mm -hmm. um, landowners who have more area have a lot more opportunities to create various water systems. And, um, you know, Zach Weiss, the founder of Water Stories, um, has featured a lot of different uh, landowner projects like that. So that's a good place to learn more about how to do that um, if, if that's something that's available to you. I would say, you know, if you are not a person who owns land, if you live in an apartment or you're a renter, um, there are probably ways to participate in your local urban planning process to suggest to city managers um, to make space for more tree plantings and other garden and infiltration areas within city sidewalks or medians or parks um so you know you can get involved in your local process there are often um watershed restoration groups in different areas who are concerned with a particular creek or a particular wetland um, so you can get involved with those groups and and work with them to, cool. to uh give give water a hand in your own community yeah yeah it's nice that this kind of slow water movement is both you can do stuff on the individual scale and also the county scale and then at the country scale and it's all important yeah um and yeah. i want to throw out a, uh one of the things i uh, an idea i had was like kind of having a slow water circles where people gather around to read a 
book, say Water Always Wins or Michael Kravich's uh, the, the New Water Paradigm or like, you know, various films around this. And so then you kind of discuss it. And then as you get your neighborhood interested, you could start doing these projects, maybe helping each other in your backyards or in the local park. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Um, I do have some, uh, a couple of book clubs that have read my book and then uh-huh. had me on to discuss it with them. And I've had a lot of interest from a wide range of people. I've been invited to give talks to, uh, you know, an office of the EPA, um, to uh, California water decision makers, to floodplain managers, water utility people, um, river restoration scientists, uh, community watershed groups, local libraries, rotary groups. Um, So it seems like people are really interested in learning more about water and what water is up to and, um, you know, what they can do with water in their own communities. Um, so yeah, it makes me that, that aspect of it makes me hopeful. Um, but then on the kind of national policy level and in journalism as well, the level of conversation that I see, I feel still isn't really giving these ideas enough weight, attention, or, or funding. Hmm. Yeah, I think it takes time. But it is kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's nice to hear that your book is actually having quite an impact on more of the local level in a lot of these different groups. So. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. And um, there, there have been uh, a few different local watershed groups that have invited me to speak that I've really enjoyed. Um, one was in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, um, they have a river there called the Yampa. Um, and I was just in Jackson, Wyoming, that's primarily concerned with the, the Snake River and some of its tributaries. And I'm going to be going uh, at the end of this month to the border of Washington and Idaho to the Palouse Water Basin. Um, and so one thing I really like about uh, these kinds of invitations is that um you do have a community group who's really invested in their local watershed and are coming together to try to address its issues. And they usually also take me out to show me some aspect of their watershed. And so it's it's really neat to see different water bodies and, um, you know, learn about issues in different areas and, and also see the kinds of, of interventions that they're doing to, to help their watershed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it, yeah, it's kind of nice because uh, uh, sometimes we feel like the whole climate issue is so big, but like the whole there are these kind of local solutions that help with the flood, the droughts, the fires that are a lot more doable, and actually could be nice because it builds community in your local area. Yeah, and you know, like we we're saying, it's not just to help with flood and drought; like it can also help with local fire safety. It can help with local heat extremes, um, you know, because plants in their evapotranspiration cool the local environment. And um, I think that's something that also that people don't really understand is like, people now know that climate is affecting the water cycle. They understand that a warmer atmosphere can hold more water. And that's why we're seeing bigger rain deluges and also longer and more intense droughts with this like thirstier atmosphere. 
Um, but they don't recognize that it goes the other way too, that um, water affects climate. You know, water phase change is the primary way that uh, earth releases heat. And in all of these ways, um, water and on the land, slow water and plants, a healthy uh, plant system helps also to, uh, to cool climate in fundamental ways. And um, yeah, I, I would like a scientist to look into, um, you know, that 25% of land use change emissions, as I understand it, is specifically focused on the carbon, like the kinds of emissions from soil drying out and, you know, the carbon that's stored in soil being released or trees being cut and that carbon being released. But I would like to see some work that also looks at the role of landscape on the water cycle and that role on the climate, because I think that could be um, a really informative piece of information for, for people to understand when they're thinking about how to address climate change. Um, I mean, the scientists who are working in this area tell me that if we're not looking at land use and the water cycle, we're not likely to be able to really address climate change um, because it's such a huge piece of the issue that we're, we're basically ignoring. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of curious how that piece has kind of got left out the carbon, like it's carbon and water. And even some of the initial scientists who, who promoted the whole carbon, like Manabi who got the Nobel prize and Chani who wrote the Chani report that made the whole carbon thing a big deal they their research was also looking at the small water cycle and how it cooled the earth and like so and the, how land use affected the climate so it was, it's interesting how all the key scientists who birthed the whole carbon movement somehow also were doing research about the whole water and land use affecting climate but somehow that because it's maybe harder to quantify it didn't get as much attention yeah and i feel like in the dominant culture we just don't do very well with complexity you know, it was as a journalist who's written about climate change for more than 20 years, um, you know, for so long, it was like all of the deniers were saying climate change isn't actually happening. And then when they finally acknowledged it was happening, it was like, well, we aren't doing it. It's just a natural phenomenon. And now, you know, a lot of people agree that it's happening and that we're doing it and that the impacts are happening now and that we have to do something about it. But then that's become you know, really simplified to like, we have to get off fossil fuels, which is really important. And I don't want to take away from that, but there's a lot more to it. Um, I mean, I think getting off fossil fuels in a way is, you know, you've got an obvious villain <laughs> that we are taking on together. Um, although not everybody agrees that they're a villain, I guess some people feel like they're providing jobs, et cetera, making the world go around. Um, anyway, I just think it's like, it's another example of that kind of sing single focus problem solving that we really tend toward in our dominant culture. And I'll just add that like, when it comes to water, one of the things I'm really trying to change in my book is that, or to point out is that cultural shift. So we think of water in the dominant culture as either a commodity, if we're worried about scarcity or a threat, if we're worried about flooding. 
but a lot of indigenous cultures around the world and a lot of the people I met who are working with water in a really hands-on way instead see water as a relative or a friend, a, a who rather than a what. And so, you know, that perspective encourages that system thinking. What does water want? What is it doing with all of these entities around it? How can we make space for that? Right. Yeah. Uh, part of it. Yeah. The, I guess, uh, as you're saying, the issue is like, how do we tell this more complex story? And, uh, and because there are many dimensions, I struggle sometimes to tell it succinctly. But I do think the idea that you're promoting slow water is is one good way to kind of capture a lot of essence in one like two word phrase that can kind of at least tell a, a significant part of the story uh, in those two words almost, if you expand it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I was hoping to do. Um, you know, I think the slow food movement did a really good job with that, even though we still have industrial agriculture. Um, you know, it really served to bring a lot of attention to the way in which how we produce food impacts local people in the environment and how how there are alternative ways that have a smaller impact. Um, and I, I think that that has resulted in an expansion of organic agriculture, no-till agriculture, um, agroforestry, these kinds of practices that uh, strive to be better caretakers of local land um, in producing food. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that the slow water idea can similarly serve as kind of a shorthand for these principles of thinking about water and its relationships in a more holistic way, and thinking about the ways in which our single focus is really undermining not just water and its relationships, but really ourselves. You know, we're causing a lot of harm to ourselves in not better understanding how water works and what what it's up to yeah i want to share the idea that we had of uh, the hashtag slow water so if you're posting to social media maybe you could use the hashtag slow water to kind of create more ways to connect our different articles and our writings together yeah yeah, yeah. and i believe you also created a, a group on linkedin a slow water group right yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah cool well, well i hope i hope we can uh kind of birth more of this slow water movement and uh get it uh, to have a great attraction um because i think that will yeah kind of help expand our awareness around this whole water story yeah i hope so and i just want to say i so appreciate all of your writings and your podcasts and um I love how you're really delving into the science and in particular, like some of the history of the science that has fed into uh, all of these concepts and, and how we got where we are. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure your listeners are already aware of your work, but uh, I just want to underscore like how, how helpful it's been to me as well. Um, because, you know, I wrote this book, uh, and it came out in June 2022. And since then, um, through your work and connecting with other people around the world, um, I've learned even more about water and all the things that it's up to. And 
that's one of the things I think that's just so fascinating about water is uh, there's always more to learn. It's so complex and so fascinating. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's not like a simple story that that's it. It's like you look more, it's like, wow, there's even more to it. And it just keeps getting more and more. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's an exciting time in terms of uh, the state of the science. And, you know, as one of my sources told me, gray infrastructure has a 150 year head start. Um, but as the body of science grows, that shows that these um, in- solutions work and are often cost effective. I'm hopeful that that will give decision makers the kind of support that they need uh, to try to do more of these kinds of projects. And just one last thought, um, I'm starting to see people, you know, like as a city in China floods from extreme rainfall, people will say, oh, well, sponge cities doesn't work apparently since the city is still flooding. Um, but again, it's really that question of scale. Um, the sponge city projects to date uh, typically are maybe five square miles, whereas one of these new large Chinese cities could be a thousand square miles. So, you know, if you have five square miles of sponginess in a city of a thousand square miles, it's not surprising that that's not enough to absorb all this rainfall. So, um, you know, it's it's really a question of scale and occasionally looking outside of the city, uh, like that example from Spain. And um, Yu Kongjiang, who is a landscape architect and one of the key proponents of sponge cities in China, you know, he's looking at the entire country um, and trying to understand how water is moving um, based on the development choices that we've made and looking at it kind of from an acupuncture perspective and releasing pinch points. And he says, um, you know, he's thinking behind sponge cities to sponge land. Mm. And he says it's time to expand the scale. So I think that's an important message. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you sharing your time here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alpha. It was fun. Yeah, thank you.